We find ourselves again this morning in 2 Timothy. And if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy, I would like to start our time off right away in the, the wonderful Word of God. This passage has been doing heart surgery on me for, for the last week. And I want to begin our time this morning in verse 19. As really that is where Paul begins his kind of final words for chapter 2. He doesn't want us to forget the church. The Lord doesn't want us to forget his church, in particular the the purity of Christ's church. And I want us to get this question in our heads as we begin this morning. It's this, what kind of vessel are you? That's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that there are two vessels in Christ's church. One that is a vessel of honor and one that is a vessel of dishonor. And might I say that we're not talking about Saved and the unsaved, we're talking about the saved within Christ's church, not functioning the way that Christ intends them to church to, to function in the church. Namely, in holiness, sanctified, set apart, cleansed by Him. But before I get ahead of myself, let's look at God's Word and let Him speak through His Word this morning. Nevertheless, in spite of all that's going on in this church, Timothy, and guys like Hymenaeus and Philetus and the gangrene-like type of influence they've been having on the church, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. That is, the church of Jesus Christ stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And now he's going to dive headlong into what this abstaining from wickedness looks like. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Let's pray together for the, the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, it is so easily 
done to us, Lord, that we get distracted, that we get off track, that we get our eyes off of you and that which is most important, and we get pulled, Lord. As no doubt so many believers in Ephesus were, pulled into the teaching of the false teachers, believing the lies that they were hand-feeding them so eloquently. Lord, there are many things that are competing for our thoughts, for our affections, for our devotion, in our culture, in our lives. And we want your word to speak first and foremost to us, Lord. So I ask that you would do that now. That you would use your word as a megaphone to us this morning to to wake us up from our slumber if we have fallen asleep. And we don't even know it. That we would desire above all things to be a, a vessel that is honorable before you. A vessel that is useful a tool that is useful in your hands, Lord. For we want to do your works, not our own. We want to be empowered by your spirit, not by our own flesh. And we want to see your church pure as you desire for it to be pure and holy as you are. So guide our time now and we thank you for your all-sufficient word, your all-so-powerful word, your inspired word, And may your Holy Spirit be our teacher and our guide this morning, as only he can be. And set me aside, Lord, and speak through your word, for we are listening. Keep the distractions to a minimal. And Lord, bring to bear anything that we might have in our lives that reveals to us, Lord, that we might indeed be functioning right now as a vessel of dishonor. I ask all these things in the wonderful name, the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. So as we wrap up chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, Paul goes back to what he's been doing basically throughout the entire first two chapters of 2 Timothy, and that is give us this example of kind of a comparison and contrast of that which is good versus that which is not good. And we've, we've seen this throughout 2 Timothy. He starts off first giving kind of an accolade to Timothy of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois and the way that they function. And how their faith was to be kind of an an example to him of being a sincere faith, as opposed, no doubt, to what is implied, all the insincere faith that is being promoted by the false teachers. Then he continues on with a good example versus a bad example as he gives us these two men. In verse 15, chapter 1, 2 Timothy. 
Really, first he gives the example of all in Asia turning away from him, but then he says, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, hey, these are men that you know, Timothy. These are men that we served alongside with. This is how I want you to function. I don't want you to follow their example. Instead, I want you to follow the example of this other man. You know him well, Onesiphorus in verse 16. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, speaking of the gospel chains that Paul wore. And then he goes on in chapter 2 and he gives us more examples of the right way and the wrong way to function. What is understood in his examples of, of the good soldier is that we are not to function as a bad soldier. Not being prepared as we should be. Not entangling ourselves in the affairs of everyday life. That we are to be a weta, a faithful athlete that competes according to the rules. Not being a, a cheating athlete, a lying athlete. And finally, a farmer, a hardworking farmer as opposed to what? A lazy farmer. And then as he wraps all that up, he goes to two more examples of men who are not functioning properly in Christ's church. False teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus in verse 17. And there, what is he doing? He's pointing to them as examples of men who are not good soldiers, men who are not good athletes. They, they, they were not hard-working farmers. And then yet, he wants to also remind Timothy that God will accomplish his purposes. That Christ's church will indeed stand. So don't get discouraged, Timothy, even with all of this going on. Even though these men and Hymenaeus himself that we heard about earlier in First Timothy, even though he's still around, even though he's still teaching these, these wrong things, don't be discouraged, even with so many in the church in Ephesus having believed them and now kind of turning against against you. Don't be discouraged. Why? Because Christ is in charge. And the firm foundation of God will stand, meaning Christ's church will indeed stand. For the Lord knows who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. This is what they will look like. This is what they should look like. That doesn't mean this is how they always look, Timothy. At times, even believers go into a lapse of not abstaining from wickedness. And they appear more like the vessels of wooden earthenware, which are vessels of dishonor, than true vessels of honor. And so that is where the Apostle Paul goes last in chapter 2. He's now giving another example. And this time the example is in Christ's church, meaning truly saved people in Christ's church. Yes, it's true that Christ's church has believers and non-believers. We see that throughout Scripture, but that's not what Paul's point is here. Paul's point is that within Christ's church, even within Christ's church, Timothy, you must recognize that there will be some that will be functioning properly living for God's glory, being faithful to all that the Lord has for them, and they will be useful tools to the Master. But there are others who are not. They, they have listened to the teaching of 
these false teachers. And as these false teachers are dirty in the way that they live, so to speak, they too have become dirty. And what they need is they need to cleanse themselves. And what the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, asks us all this morning is, what kind of vessel are you going to be? Don't settle for being a vessel of dishonor. Basically, what the Lord is saying to us this morning is, let me show you. Let me show you the way of being a vessel of honor. A vessel which is useful in in, in my hands and a vessel that has value to me. And he does this by, and, and this is in your outline, first revealing to us the making of a vessel of honor. Second, how this vessel of honor is to be maintained. That's going to be in verse 22. And then finally, the ministry of the vessel of honor. What does this service look like for the Lord, to the Lord, in honor of the Lord. That's in 23 to 26. So where does he start? He starts with what is the making of a vessel of honor. And he starts with a large house representing Christ's church. Look at verses 20 to 21. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Listen, there is no way for someone to be able to apply verse 21 unless they are a believer. If you are not saved, then you will not be able to cleanse yourself from the things that he's just been talking about, from this gangrene, from this wrong way of speaking, worldly and empty chatter, of not being a a good soldier. There's, There's no way for you to function like that unless you are redeemed. So so we need to start from the very beginning here and understanding that this is speaking to believers. That's why he says cleanse. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have not the ability to be cleansed. You must first understand that you are a sinner in need of saving. And the only way for you to be cleansed, to be washed, to have your sins forgiven, is for you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him alone. Amen? So if there are any this morning who have not, I plead with you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, trusting in Him. And from that point on, that doesn't mean you automatically become a vessel of honor. As far as God's vantage point looking on you yes by God's wonderful grace he takes the very righteousness of Christ and he gives that to you but as far as practically speaking and serving and living for him in this life what we call sanctification where you become more and more holy you become more and more like God that is a process that by God's grace we all continue in 
becoming more and more holy. That, that is exactly what Paul is talking about. Now, why, why do I believe that he's speaking only to believers? Not just because there's no way that we can cleanse ourselves without the Holy Spirit indwelling us and being saved and being in a right position or relationship with God, but because of the terminology that he uses, because of the context that he just talked about, the firm foundation of God stands, speaking of the church. Then what does he say? Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. This terminology for a house, he's referring to Christ's church. But he's only referring to the believers in Christ's church, Christ's true church. Really, this goes back to 1 Timothy. In fact, turn there with me so, so we don't forget. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 15 and Look at what Paul says here, because he uses the same terminology. You see, Paul likes to use this, this analogy of the, of the church being a house, and that we as Christ's church, that we are what? His household, we are a family. And where do families live? Do, do families live in a cave somewhere? Well, maybe somewhere they do, but then they call that cave kind of like their house. Do, do, we, do we live in, in a warehouse? No, generally we don't. We live in homes. Why? Because homes are personal. That is where you go to after work. That is where you spend time as a family. That is the understanding of what he's presenting to us here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. This is a great house. This is a family house for all of God's children to gather together with many, many rooms. And just as he says here, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will, what? Know how one ought to conduct himself, where? In the household of God. That's Christ's church, which is the church of the living God. And then notice what he says. The pillar and support of the truth. God is the pillar and support of the truth. Where else do you use this terminology, pillar and support and foundation, except for when you're talking about houses and buildings? And yet in this, through Paul, the Lord is reminding us of the closeness that we have as Christ's church. What we should have as Christ's church. And really our call for unity. And our call towards holiness as Christ's church. That's what this is all about. So first, we have this making of a vessel of honor. It is speaking of Christ's church. And notice what kind of house it is. It's not a small little house at all. It is a great, big, large house. Containing how many millions of people that are part of the redeemed. I'd like this to think in terms, or all of us to think of this in terms of, okay, not, not just the church alone. Why? Because before the church was the nation of Israel. Were there truly saved people in the nation of Israel? Moses? Yes. Before the church began. Is there going to be truly saved people after the church is gone? Don't answer too quickly. Revelation chapter 7 would lend us to believe that during the tribulation, many, many people are going to be saved. And I believe at that point, the church is gone. 
So, so who is being saved at that point? Those that did not, were not part of the church. But by God's wonderful grace, there is the greatest revival ever in the history of mankind that happens in the Great Tribulation. Okay, don't take my word for it. Let, let's look at God's word, Daniel. I, I want us to understand that, that, that when, when, when we think of, of the saved, that we are talking about a huge, huge people. Peoples, plural, many, 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 millions. And yet how many are lost? I want us to consider peoples, nations, tongues, languages. Because that's God's heart and that is who he is redeeming. That is who he is saving. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming to you. Is the son of man. He is God incarnate. That is who he is speaking of. Speaking of the Messiah. And he came up to the ancient of days, speaking of God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, by God the Father, was given what? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom. This is a physical, real kingdom. And who is part of that kingdom? We are. The Old Testament saints. The tribulation saints. And what will happen with this kingdom? This kingdom will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay, real quickly. Revelation chapter 7. Beginning in verse 9. Just to expound and, and, and expand our understanding of how incredibly gracious our God is and how incredible the gospel is because the gospel will be proclaimed in the tribulation. Not just by the 144,000 that God hides out, but by anyone that is saved during that time. They are going to be his mouthpieces. And as a result of them proclaiming the gospel over and over and over again, we are going to see not just a small little group of people saved, not just in America, not just Americans. No, it's going to be every people group. After these things, look at verse 9. I looked and behold a great multitude which was just really small, really small. No, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Do you know why? Because it works both ways. Not only can Satan come and deceive everybody through the Antichrist, but the gospel of Jesus Christ will be able to go out to everyone. Because what God can do is he can take something that looks so bad and so wrong and he can flip it around and turn it into something amazing for his glory. And then look at this. This, this to me is comical. Then one of the elders, that, that's again why I believe this is speaking about the church. The church is already gone. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And since John has absolutely no idea, I said to him, my Lord, you know. Hey, just give me the answer. 
And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Amen, amen. That, that's what we're talking about when, when we talk about this, this great house, those who are going to be saved, that they will enjoy all of eternity with us. The question is, are you? This isn't a, give, a gimme. It is only for those who are what? That are the chosen. Paul has made that abundantly clear. It is only for those who, by God's grace, he has granted them repentance. Verse 25 that we're going to see today. It's all about him. And him accomplishing exactly what he plans and purposes and wills to accomplish. And what that is, is a great big house with tons and tons of people in it from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. And yet we'll all be able to get along and speak and praise the Lord together. You know how sweet that is? So it's large. We, we see that, that this house is large. Second, what else do we see? It's a rich man's house. You see, back in this culture, not everybody had gold and silver items in their homes. Maybe we can think of it as a Lexus today. How many people have Lexus? We think people with Lexus are people that are doing quite well. Or you plug in whichever expensive car you want to think about. Okay, this is a house that is a house of a wealthy person. But the point isn't so much the wealth as it is what's part of that house. And really there are only two different kinds of things in this particular house. Even though he gives us four examples, gold and silver, earthenware and wood, he's speaking of two different things. There's those that are used that are honorable things. And, and in this, honestly, things could have been a, a good translation. Because it doesn't just mean utensils used for serving food, which is what I believe that, that Paul is getting at, but it means basically kind of anything in the house. It could have been your furniture, it could have been your chairs, it could have been your kitchen cabinets, all of these things, however you want to look at it, but that is not exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the gold goblets and the silver goblets and the plates that, that you bring out. And when you bring those out, what does it do? It points to the owner of the house. And it speaks a little bit towards, no, a lot towards the glory that this person must have. And again, what is it doing? It's a, it's a reflection of our God. Who to him, gold is such a small little pivotal thing, he could, he could pave all of the streets of heaven with it. No, this is a rich man's house. It's, it's giving us this understanding of that which is valuable, which that which, in contrast, which that which is not valuable. That these are things that when you bring these out, not only does it speak to the owner of the house, but it speaks to the guests that have come. That you're valued. You're valued to such an extent that I, I'm going I'm to bring out my best china for you. And all of that is an example to see what the other is. The dishonorable vessels. You see these other vessels, the gold and the silver, you want everyone to see those. The servants come and, and they don't just set them down. They probably do a, do a little route around so everybody can see the ornateness and the beauty of what is going on. So it's beautifying your house. 
But these other vessels are nothing like that. They are dirty. They are vile. You don't parade them in front of everybody. Are you kidding? You tell everybody to be quiet. If the servant's carrying that, they go out the back door. Nobody wants to see it because they're disgusting. And that is the picture that he is painting for some of those in Christ's church who are believers, but who have been tainted so much by the false teaching that they are now, much like the false teachers are dirty, they're dirty. I'm not talking about positionally. I'm not saying that they're not saved. What I'm saying is that they are choosing to live this life apart from Christ and His strength and His cleansing. And that's what they need. And it's no surprise then that the analogy, the picture that Paul gives us is, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, Why? Because these earthenware, these clay, these wooden utensils that they would have used, they they would have been the ones, things used to take out the trash. Smelly, terrible, you you don't want everybody to see trash. And then even worse than that, they are are the things that, that remember, they didn't have plumbing. So they're also taking out the urine and, and, and everything else, the feces, with it. No, these are things that you don't parade around. And and he's trying to, to as tactfully but as expressively as he can remind us of the holiness of God and how that matters in Christ's church. And yes, there are false teachers and he has told Timothy, deal with them, get them out. But recognize, Timothy, that these false teachers have had an influence. And now there are some within Christ's church that are not functioning the way that they should be functioning. They're no longer useful tools in the hands of the Lord. Instead, they've they've fallen into this snare of the devil, this trap of the devil, which we're going to see at the end in verse 26. By God's grace and his gift of repentance, they can come out of. So he says, no, you, you first and foremost, in making you a honorable vessel you need to cleanse yourself you can't do that without the lord's help you can't do that without the power of the holy spirit living and residing in you but then you're not passive in the process you can't you can't just sit in your chair every day and think that oh well i'm just going to become more holy without engaging my mind without spending time in god's word without thinking through how this is going to affect you adversely keeping an eye on what you watch how you think where you go, and the people you hang out with. No, this idea of cleansing yourself from these things is pointing back to the false teachers and all the wrong teaching they've been doing as well as their wrong lives. And it's getting rid of all that which is unclean. That is an impossible task unless the Holy Spirit indwells us. And even then, we all recognize just how difficult it is. And so he says, cleanse yourself from those things, and then you'll be a vessel of honor, sanctified. Recognize that when he says sanctified, we always think of it as, oh, set apart for God. No, first it's set apart from sin. It's got two sides to it. You need to set yourself apart from sin. Leave the way that you used to live behind. And set yourself apart to the Lord. 
to do his bidding, to do that which pleases him. That's what's in, in focus here, that you would please the Lord, that you would be useful to the Lord. That you might be what? Prepared for every good work. This is the outward service for the Lord that every believer should be doing, that he has planned for us, even though at times we may say, man, no, don't send me to Africa. And that may be exactly what the Lord's going to do. And do you know what? You will love Africa. Just as we loved Papua New Guinea. Why? Because that is what the Lord has for you, and there's nothing better for you to be doing than what the Lord has for you. It's just that at times we're much more like Romans 9, and, and we're the clay talking back to the potter saying, no, that, that's not good. I want this. And so then you fill out exactly how you want your life to look like, and then you sign it, and then you put a little side over here for God to sign, and you give that to him, and you say, hey, my will be done, and just sign on with me. And God says, no, this is what I have for you. Now honor me in this, in the midst of all the trials and, and the hardships that you might go through. Why? So that you might be a useful tool in my hands. And do you recognize that what might be tripping you up might be a fellow believer? Do you know at times that fellow believers actually can be more of a hindrance than a good for us? That that too is another message of what Paul is proclaiming here? Hey, these guys need to cleanse themselves. Why? Because what they're doing is affecting other believers. And we need to think of it almost in in, in a way of like a one-way valve where the water only comes one way. Your godly influence should only go one way. And if their influence is to pull you deeper and back in with them in the way that they live in an ungodly way, then it is better for you not to associate with someone like that. Oh, Pastor Jason, I think you're making more of this than, than, than what Scripture really says. No. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We, we need to be mindful that the Lord Jesus Christ desires for his church to be holy, to be pure. And, and that means that we must keep short accounts with our sin. That means that as we spend time with one another, that we should be challenging and encouraging each other to grow in godliness, particularly if you see an area in somebody else's life that doesn't match up with Scripture. By God's grace, not because any of us are perfect, no, but that we would encourage and challenge each other to grow more and more in godliness. What was happening in Corinth was there was just this terrible sin going on. It was a sin fest. And instead of handling it correctly as the church should have, they just let it keep going and going and going to such an extent that some of what was happening in the church was worse than what was happening in the world. In the rest of Corinth, look at verse 1, chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And so then what does Paul do? He makes a pronouncement. 
And he writes them. Look at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to move someplace all by yourself. Why? Because this world is supposed to be sinful. Because that's who they follow. Christ's church is not. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or a covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I ha- for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Second Thessalonians is, is, I think, even particularly more challenging. He gives them this three-chapter letter, and this is what he says at the end of it. You want to talk about holding a high standard as to what a, a preacher, a pastor requires of his body? Look at this. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. What for? What is the purpose of Matthew 18 in church discipline? So that that person would be forever in shame, forever outcast, forever tossed aside? No, that they would be brought back in. Restoration is the purpose. Look at 15. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I'm assuming that's because he is a brother. And what will pull them back in is to not to just keep accepting his sin as they were doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but to challenge him in his holiness, to challenge him in this whole aspect that you are acting as a vessel of dishonor. You are not bringing glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that you are living. And I seriously have no idea where any of you are at today. This is all... Pastor Jason, and what the Lord has been laying upon my life and my heart. I've been asking the Lord to just reveal these areas in my life where I am being dishonorable, and you know how many come up? Just out of my mouth, in the way that I don't always respond the way that I should respond. I want to be a vessel of honor. Why? So that I can be useful to the Lord, don't you? That's what he's saying. Do you ever ask yourself, Lord, what do you want me to do? What, what, what is it, the work that you've prepared? I know you prepared a work for me. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you have it all planned out. So please reveal to me exactly how you want me to work and walk and honor you right here, right now in this. That's not usually my first go-to. My first go-to is jump in, respond, and then I ask, hey, was that good? instead of seeking the Lord. Just be reminded, bad, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 13. God takes sin seriously, and he desires that his church not be tainted by it. And so we're to, to deal with it. So in order for God to make us vessels of honor, we're first to keep ourselves pure. 
And that is how he makes us vessels of honor. Next, he goes on to, okay, so how do you maintain yourself as a vessel of honor? And he gets into really our relationship with the Lord. In verse 22, as he says this, now, right now, so this is what you do practically every day, Timothy. You're a young man, and I recognize what some of your desires are. And I recognize the way that you are going to struggle. And so what you need to do, Timothy, is you need to what? Flee from youthful lusts. And you need to pursue righteousness. That's the take off, put on. Take off the youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That, that has the idea of gathering around others and spurring each other on towards, man, let's become more and more godly together. That's the picture of Christ's church. Growing more and more in godliness. Fleeing here. This idea of putting off youthful lusts. It's to keep from doing something that is harmful by avoiding it. It's the word that we get fugitive from. Do you know what a fugitive does? A fugitive does whatever he can so he can't be caught. He avoids everything that might actually get him caught. That needs to be your attitude towards youthful lust, but don't think this is talking just about sexual thoughts. Might be included here, but that's not what this word means. This is an expression of sin which rules you. And I believe what he's referring to here is first and foremost pride. Which is something that is also prevalent in what? Younger folks. Does that mean I still don't deal with it now? Oh, I, I, I would just be lying to you all. Is it something that by God's grace I've got a little better handle on? Yes, but I don't think I'll ever be done with dealing with pride. It's that pervasive. It is the one thing that gets in between you and God from which everything else just, just gets completely dismantled. What's the other side? Being argumentative. Thinking that you know everything. And that's what he's speaking to about Timothy. Hey, lay those things aside. Avoid all of that. And instead, do this. Pursue right living righteousness. That which pleases God. That kind of behavior that pleases God. That's what you're to go after. And notice, all of these really are the fruit of the Spirit. When he says faith, he's not talking about our faith as much as he's talking about faithfulness. Faithfulness in everything. Pointing back to his examples. Being a faithful farmer, a hardworking farmer, a faithful soldier. It's also understood that as, even as an athlete, you're a faithful athlete. According to the rules, that is how you are competing. The love that he's talking about, it's an agape love. All of this points back to the gospel. That the gospel is what energizes us in order to live like this. Because we know what love is. Why? Because he first loved us. We know what peace is. Why? Because he is the one that has given us peace. And he's the perfect picture of peace. Even upon the cross. Trusting in exactly whatever God the Father had for him. And knowing that. And then this all happens from what? From a pure heart. Again, only someone who is saved can have a pure heart. That's why I believe this is all talking about believers and some within the church that are not functioning the way that they should be functioning. So we've seen how God 
makes a believer into a vessel of honor through what? The process of sanctification. Where a believer by God's power and his grace cleanses himself of all that's not pleasing to the Lord. Step by step. We've seen how to maintain being an honorable vessel by putting off youthful passions and and putting on righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And finally, the, the last part of this puzzle in being a vessel of honor is ministering the way God tells us to minister in patience and great, great gentleness. Such a challenge. And notice how he starts off. He starts off with also a put off, put on. Hey, put off what? But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Why? Because Christ desires unity in his church. And the kind of arguments and the kind of dialogues that they were having, they were foolish and they were ignorant. They weren't helping anyone. They weren't gospel-focused. They were directed in all the wrong things. And so many times you can just get into all sorts of bantering over things that do not matter for your spiritual well-being. In fact, what it does is it takes you off course, which is exactly what these guys did. This isn't saying that Timothy still didn't stand up and refute the error. Oh, he did. What he didn't do was get sidetracked into all the other peripheral issues. And then look at what he says. Don't be quarrelsome, but with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Being patient when wronged. Be kind to all, able to teach. Being patient when wrong, that's having a capacity for tolerance in the face of opposition and tension. This only happens if the Holy Spirit is taking over in our lives because our normal tendency is anything but patience. Our normal tendency is anything but kindness. But if the Holy Spirit is having His way in our lives, and everything changes. And notice what happens as a result of that kind of life. Someone who lives like that. Someone who interacts with others like that. And this isn't just only speaking for those who are, what? The leaders of this church. Because he says, anyone. If anyone cleanses himself. This is speaking to all of us in Christ's church. This should be the way that we live our lives. Ultimately, what? for for the gospel for the sake of salvation of others because look at what happens as a result so the lord's bond servant must be not not be quarrelsome but be kind to all able to teach patient when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps god may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth notice who's in the driver's seat of the repentance there This word means to grant. It means to give. That means that this person didn't have this repentance before this point. This person didn't have this repentance stored up in them that somehow came to be. No, this means it was sourced from God. That he's the one that granted it. That he's the one that gifted it. And I take this to believe you could go both ways with it. When we place our faith and confidence in Christ the first time, that that repentance is a gift from the Lord given from him. And now, if we find ourselves struggling in sin and we just don't want to give it up and we don't want to give it up and we don't want to give it up, but God in His grace continues to seek us and seek us and pursue us 
And one day we're sitting under the ministry of the word or in our quiet time or, or you fill in the blank. What does God do? He grants you repentance. You are a mess. And you're like the prodigal son coming home. And God says, my grace is here. Man, what a beautiful picture that this is for the whole church in Ephesus to recognize, man, you live like this. You minister like this. You be all about me and my gospel. You be all about me and, and your relationship with me. And you lay aside those things. You abandon that and you seek me. And you pursue righteousness. And you pursue faith. And you pursue love and peace. And you do that. And you follow me. And you love my word. And you become a diligent student of my word. And you're all about the gospel. Why? Because nobody can be granted repentance unless they actually hear the gospel. And then watch what I will do. I will change this world just as I changed it back in the days of the apostles. Just as I'm going to do, as we saw in Revelation 7. I'm going to turn this world upside down. Even in the midst of God's wrath being poured out. Really what we see being pictured here at the end. Did, did you get this? A, a transition. He, he started with comparing this vessel to that vessel. A vessel of honor with a vessel of dishonor. And then as he wraps everything up, now he's put two different people in the limelight. And who is he putting all the emphasis on? He's placing the emphasis on God the Father and his incredible gift of salvation as opposed to Satan. And the fact that we were all held captive by Satan. And some might indeed still be held captive by Satan never being saved in terms of the false teachers. But as far as, far as the believers go in Ephesus, there were many who were now being deceived by Satan. And they needed to come to their senses. That, that word literally means to wake up. It's, it's like the idea to where all of a sudden you wake up and you find, oh man, I am drowning. I didn't even know it. That's God's grace. Oh, for the grace of God. Let me close our time as Pastor Shane and the worship team come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this vivid, these vivid pictures that we see. For we truly, at, at the deepest level of who we are, we want to be vessels of honor. We want our lives to be an accurate representation of who you are and how good you are and how holy you are and how honorable you are and how blessed you are, Lord. So help us to do that, Lord. Would you grant us the, that gift of repentance for those areas in our lives that we might be unaware of or that we, we know fully well what we're doing? Turn our hearts to you, that you might be glorified, that you might be honored, that others might hear the good news of who you are, Lord Jesus, what you accomplished on the cross, that they might turn to you in repentance and believe and join us forever in your eternal kingdom. And it's all for your glory that we pray. Amen.